Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This week's classic episode is uh, part of a part of a continuing series that, frankly, I, I don't think any of us like doing. It's it's a grisly thing, and it's just it's necessary to talk about it. But um, once you get past all the fiction and the um, the crime dramas and stuff, serial murderers are an incredibly evil thing. It is something of a modern, you know, um, creation, I guess. Uh, at the very least, the obsession with them is. Uh, and we try not to, you know, be on that tip in terms of just being so focused on the grisly, gory details of these kinds of things. Uh, we try to just report the facts and um, really let you know about this uh, very distinctly modern um, construct that is the the serial killer. Well, yeah, because y- you don't even know that it's a serial killer until someone in law enforcement or an, or an investigator connects enough cases to realize, oh, wait, there is a serial killer. Which is why there are some known serial killers we're going to talk about in this episode that were never caught or are are perhaps still out there. And there are many others that are likely just unknown and existing anonymously. Yeah. And although uh, the current technological innovations regarding surveillance make it more difficult for people to, for killers to function that way, uh, it is far from impossible. And so there are still, here in 2023, serial killers on the loose. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our uh, long-suffering, super-tolerant, super-producer, Paul Deccant. Most importantly, you are here. You are you. That makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Part three in a continuing series. 
the Trinfinity. An unfortunately <laughs> continuing series, we should add, yeah. as well. Uh, you see, folks, this is part three in our series on unapprehended serial killers. And in the past, in previous episodes, we covered the New Bedford Highway Killer, uh, Remains Unapprehended, uh, the Lisbon Ripper, also unapprehended, Pedro Lopez, famously known as the Monster of the Andes. Once amp- apprehended, then not anymore. Uh, yes, once apprehended, then escaped. Uh, in a few years ago, uh, Interpol released a warrant or a, a call to find this guy. Uh, and then we also covered the Connecticut River Valley killer and the possibilities of uh, that killer's true identity. Uh, we also covered the Long Island serial killer, a.k.a. the Craigslist Ripper. Yeah, and then we had Bible John thrown in there from the, the last one, mm-hmm. the uh, the babysitter, which was an odd name, I remember, uh, for for a killer. The, the Freeway Phantom was one, and the maniac of Novosibirsk. Yeah, I believe that's how you say it. That sounds right to me. Okay, cool. <laughs> and you can you can check out our previous episodes, uh, one of which has a, a guest on the show uh, who is not themselves a serial killer, so far as we know. And there you can find uh, some deep dives into both the methods of murder, the times these killers were known to be active, and uh, the latest research at the time of the recording regarding whether or not they will be apprehended. And we did this along with serial killers who almost got away, who very well would have gotten away had they not returned uh, to an active state. And those would be people like the Grim Sleeper or Dennis Radar, also known as BTK or the Bind Torture Kill. And we've also explored the stories of the original Night Stalker, uh, which was – that was a tough one. And, and mm-hmm. the Highway of Tears especially. Which continues. Man, in Canada. Uh, there's a lot to go back and listen to. So I would recommend just getting in those archives, go way back and um, explore it. But it, it's a grisly ride. And don't do it while you're eating. Please. And as we said at the top, more serial killers remain on the loose today. Uh, We are, spoiler alert, not going to have any chance of covering them all in this episode. So as you are listening, if there is one that you think your fellow listeners would find particularly fascinating, or most importantly, if you think there might be some sort of lead that could ultimately result in the apprehension, conviction, or arrest of one of these unidentified killers, whether or not they're on this show, let us know. Several of the killers we're exploring today have little or no chance of facing up to the consequences of their crimes, those crimes being serial murder. Yeah. Right? So this is different from... Garden variety homicide, not to diminish the tragedies inherent in that. And first, let's let's have a quick recap of what exactly defines a serial killer. So the base level criteria for a serial killer are that this individual commits at least three murders um, in at least three separate locations and that there is uh, something of a cooling off period in between. So almost like a kind of hibernation almost. Yeah, and that that comes from the 1992 Crime Classification Manual. And um, 
that's where it outlines all that stuff. But that's not where the term serial killer originates. Right. The term serial killers, we understand it today, was coined in the mid-1970s by former director of the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, a man named Robert Ressler. He chose serial, for a peek behind the curtain here, because the police in England called these types of murders crimes in a series, quote-unquote, and because of the serial films that he grew up watching In part two of the series, in the previous episode on uncaught serial killers, we examined some of the methods that have been used to classify this type of murderer based on their motivations, their processes, uh, the very rough demographics from killers who were caught or were observed in enough detail by witnesses or survivors to create a uh, a reasonable shot at a physical description. And what we've learned from these various investigations is that real-life serial killers, as exceedingly rare as they are, don't often match the image of a killer of this type that you would see in so many works of fiction. Yeah, and you know, this is the first uncaught serial killers episode we've done since Mindhunter has been out on Netflix. Oh, that's true. Which And then that's just one of those shows that really gets you into the behavioral science department of the FBI and how their thinking about crimes in a series really has evolved over time and how the psychology of some of these people, how it functions. I think it's interesting how little action that show has but how it still keeps you on the edge of your seat and it really reveals so much about the inner workings and like a lot of the tension comes from conversation rather than confrontation kind of. And I think it's really, really great show. But unlike some of the highlights from a show, a fictionalized show like that, these murderers are not brilliant masterminds many times. Uh, A lot of times they're just like you and I. They have families. They have networks of friends. They drive cars. They have a a car note that Hmm. they pay. They've got a mortgage perhaps or something to that effect. And they might even be on social media. And these impulses that we're talking about, like this urge to kill – in this way is less some sort of calculated mastermind kind of thing and as it is like an addiction that you're constantly struggling with and fighting every day and having to kind of figure out how to incorporate it into that family life and not be discovered. You know, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating psychological landscape for these crimes. And serial killers, like many other people, because ultimately these are not some sort of uh, super-powered subspecies of humanity. These are people at, at base, right? And ultimately, they are as varied in terms of their demographic description or their motivations as uh, a, another person would be about their own, you know, socioeconomic status, their own uh, genetic makeup, uh, their aims and desires, just as there are uh, serial killers who feel they have voices commanding them to do something. There are also serial killers who have a belief that, you know, as Noel said, there's a there's maybe a compulsion. And then there may also be a belief that a certain amount of people must be killed in a certain way for some sort of design. Uh, these are not uh, cookie cutter profiles. And we want to emphasize again the damning thing about 
the information we do have, we being human civilization, law enforcement at large, is that we are basing these classifications almost entirely on incomplete evidence because we're only talking usually about the ones who get caught. Yeah, because how do you talk about the ones who are still out there? I mean, if you if you can't interview someone and they can't tell you something, you're just inferring from what you find at a crime scene. So we've mentioned in previous episodes that, again, pre-Mind Hunters, mm-hmm. a lot of people would be most familiar with certain fictional characters when they think of serial killers. Like a Hannibal Lecter? Sure, or Dexter, for mm-hmm. instance, right? And in both of those cases, the killers are uh, – they ultimately transform into antiheroes, right? Yep. And they are also meticulous and brilliant and very rarely driven uh, by passion rather than premeditation, which in real life is not always the case. Have you guys seen Manhunter, the uh, the original appearance of Hannibal Lecter? Right, the it's original like Michael Mann movie. Mm-hmm. No, it's weird. It's very eighties, but it's it's very beautifully shot. And um, Brian Cox plays Hannibal Lecter. It's just interesting because we know you know the Anthony Hopkins portrayal of that role so well because it's so over the top, kind of like y- you see him in that role, and you're almost like, how would anyone not peg that dude for a psycho a mile away? Brian Cox plays it much more understated and much more like, you know, he could pass for a regular dude. Whereas Anthony Hopkins, while that performance is captivating, I kind of feel like, how would you not know that that guy's got bodies in his basement? I have to say really fast, when when I hear Brian Cox, I think of the physicist that, that I remember from our days with Discovery, mm-hmm. uh, the younger CERN, I believe he's a CERN physicist. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I know what Brian Cox, the actor, looks like. Well, you are in <laughs> luck. Oh, yes. Okay. Very familiar. Okay. So for uh, everyone who can't see, because this is, of course, coming to you as an audio <laughs> podcast, Noel pulled up a photograph of Brian Cox uh, for Matt's illumination. And meanwhile, I'm looking at the uh, English author and physicist. <clears throat> he does come up first, though. I know why. I think I spelled Brian's name wrong. He has an English spelling, maybe. B-R-I-A-N versus... No. No, their names are spelled identically, but Brian Cox, the physicist, definitely comes up before the actor. Good on you, Google. <laughs> you know what? I will take that a step further and say good on you, humanity. Maybe it's because Stephen Hawking died today, and so <sighs> physics are at top of mind. Yeah, I got to work. That was a top thing. That's true, yes. As we're recording this, it is uh, both the anniversary of Albert Einstein's Birth, it is Pi Day, and it is the day that Stephen Hawking's legendary astrophysicist expired. This may well be old news by the time this hits mm-hmm. the airwaves, but hopefully it's still relevant. And what a fascinating, what a, what a fascinating person. But wait, you may be saying, isn't this an episode about uncaught serial killers? It is indeed. And we'll dive into that after a word from our sponsor. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on... 
the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. There are so many serial killers that have been active over the years that are still uncaught that may be active right now. Maybe we're just unaware of it. Um, Or that have been caught and released or caught and then, you know, evidence, very compelling evidence exists but some technicality has allowed them to walk free. It's a possibility. Or as also happens, they may have been apprehended for another crime mm. and not tied to the murders, right, as the case might be, but instead be languishing in prison yeah. for some time. And then maybe police are out, authorities are looking for someone mm. and they're right under their noses. They just don't know. So let's travel to India to Mumbai, and let's look at some specific examples of serial killers on the loose, or at least unapprehended today. We're looking at a killer known as Beer Man. That's our first example. And yes, that is beer, B-E-E-R, like something you would, you know, uh, cold when you would crack open with the boys, to paraphrase Reddit. 
So between October 2006 and January 2007 by India, uh, the press and law enforcement were on the track of a killer they called Beer Man because according to them, them being the press and law enforcement, one of the primary linkages between these deaths was the presence of beer bottles near the bodies. But you'll find conflicting info about this case. Yeah. One source said there were only two beer cans found throughout the entirety of this serial killer's run. Um, And it was only two victims. And they were, in fact, beer cans. But again, this is reporting from India. And the sources we're using are everything from the Times of India uh, to NDTV to uh, there's a blog called Open something. I can't recall the name of it right now. But they're they're varying sources and – we're definitely getting conflicting information. You ever notice how in in most movies about serial killers, the cops always are super pissed when the press gives a snappy nickname to a killer? Like that is not serving their goals usually. They're usually yeah. very annoyed. Or if someone refers to them like that as an, an internal memo, they're like – you know, you better not let this get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that happens in real life too, because one of the one of the things that puts the press and law enforcement at loggerheads in the investigations of these crimes is going to be uh, the idea of the good scoop, the exclusive scoop, versus uh, the need to hold information back mm-hmm. so that they can really identify the killer. Because another trope in fiction that does turn out to be true, unfortunately, is that when the specific details of a murder or a, a murderer's rituals are released, copycat people or or people who want the attention mm-hmm. will just call into the police department and say, you know, you got me. I am the bag badger's butcher or whatever. Mm. I knew it was you all along, Ben. Oh, this is my Paul impression. I like it. No, but it's true. And I mean, can you imagine being a cop responsible for solving one of these crimes? How annoying and like muddling it must be when this information starts flooding the press and you're constantly having to differentiate between real information Mm -hmm. and these jerks that are just trying to like waste your time and get a little, you know, get a little rise. You know, I can't, I I mean, I, you know. But then from a journalist perspective, it's almost your duty to inform the people around you, the the public, know, of suck. like dangers that exist. So <laughs> sure. you know you have those two com- competing things. It's very true, and you know we can't assign motives to journalism entire because it's also true that journalists will seek to gain uh, the most credibility in in the media marketplace. And it's also true they want to uh, sell the most, uh, maybe sell the most papers back in the day, get the most clicks online nowadays. And yes, by the way, side note, it's entirely possible that an active serial killer today is on social media just because of the numbers. However, uh, one, one thing that we have noticed in the past is that there have been times where journalists have assigned a killer or a perceived killer, uh, a nickname that the killer themselves objected to, you know, like, don't call me uh, the baby rubber. I am, you know, the king of darkness. And then it becomes, it introduces this whole new layer of uh, complication with investigating the case. And, uh, you know, one of the things that law enforcement doesn't want uh, a killer to do, one of the reasons they discount 
like nicknames in general is because some of these murderers have latched on to this in the past, right? Jack the Ripper, right? Uh, the Axeman in New Orleans or uh, – Let's see. Um, did the Zodiac Killer self-assign? That's a weird one though, right? Because I feel like he set the terms for his role and then the press kind of fed back into it and became this like weird feedback loop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of want to say he at least had a, a symbol of some kind. Or did he sign his letter Zodiac? Mm. We're going to have to dive in. We could do an entire episode on the Zodiac Killer. For now, let's look at the beer man. Let's go back to India. Current speculation as we record this puts the number of victims at between six to eight individuals. Their methods of murder differ. Uh, They were killed by being hit on the head with a stone, in some cases bludgeoned, or in other cases, uh, according to NDTV, they were stabbed in the chest. Yeah, several different types of bludgeonings occurred and stabbings uh, from the reports we had read. Though all the men there – were, there were several men. The first victim was a taxi driver that was found. Uh, all the men were poor or not – at least not wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were homeless. It was surmised that the killer himself was probably not poor and this is for several several reasons. Because first of all, he drinks beer out of cans, which I guess is a, a factor. Um, and then also because he must have been or was probably operating a vehicle of some sort uh, and you have to have a certain amount of money in India in that area to own or at least operate a vehicle. In any part of the world. Wouldn't yes. drinking beer out of glass be fancier? Possibly. I don't I don't know the customs uh, in that area. But yeah, it was it was given as drinking beer from a can was – one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that in cases with glass bottled beverages like Thumbs Up, which is a popular mm-hmm. soda, that the glasses are typically purchased and returned mm-hmm. and then refilled. That makes sense. So that that might play a role in there. They also attempted to build a, a profile and they said that the killer was likely young, uh, early 30s, 30 to 35. And uh, in – pretty good physical shape because he was able to overpower his victims easily. The killers – well, the sites of the murders were secluded spots which to them indicated that this murderer knew South Mumbai well or here's the terrifying thing, knows South Mumbai well. And the uh, perpetrator of these crimes was believed to have had sex with five of his victims before killing them. Um, At the fourth scene, the killer allegedly left a note which was written in very polished English. Uh, And while he may have had good English, he did not have good handwriting apparently because most of the text of the letter was undecipherable. Or it's possible that the cops chose not to release the contents in full and just excerpt it instead. Um, But one of the things that was contained in the note was the quite chilling uh, welcome to the clan. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Like an initiation of some sort? Right. C-L-A-N, not K-L-A-N. Right. Yeah. Uh, so again, there are differences in the MO, the uh, mode of operation here, specifically stabbing versus bludgeoning or also strangulation. Uh, police believe that these murders have been committed by the same man. And then things took a turn on January 22nd, 2007. Mumbai law enforcement arrested someone for the murders. A man named Ravindra um, Cantrol, and it's also written Cantralu in a couple of places. 
Um, so Ravindra Cantrell, I think that's what we'll probably call him for this. Uh, they arrested him for the murders. And according to the Times of India, once he was in custody, he was subjected to several tests, some of which I at least personally was not familiar with. They called it one narcoanalysis, uh, which we think is probably just a drug, drug test, test of some sort, brain mapping, which I have not seen used in law enforcement, uh, and polygraph. So let's go through these really fast. Mm -hmm. The um, the narcoanalysis tests that uh, Mr. Ravindra went through, they seem to clear up the beer mystery, according to the Times of India, um, saying, okay, so he allegedly said as he's going through this test mm -hmm. that – he would make him his victims drink beer before killing them, uh, but he did deny, according to the Times of India, uh, any sexual conduct with his victims. And a lot of homophobia draws into this part of the investigation, which has happened happened before. For instance, uh, one of John Wayne Gacy's primary things that he stuck to for his entire time in prison was that he was not a homosexual and he was very irritated and frustrated that he felt the press was unfairly calling him that. And there's there's an echo of this here with the, the suspect, Ravindra uh, Control, saying that he was uh, being falsely accused of being attracted to the same sex. And that trope uh, actually is going to come into play later on in today's episode in a, in a very big way. Now, the other test, one of the other ones was called brain mapping. And with this one, Controlla was attached to a device that looked at, I guess, brain signals, brain waves, if you will, mm -hmm. um, while he's looking at pictures of victims from these the beer man killings. It sounds like some Black Mirror stuff right it there. It does, right? And allegedly, according to these sources, he showed signs of recognizing several of the photographs. So maybe the activity in a certain region of his brain spiked when he saw certain photographs. And then we're assuming if it were to be a uh, a valid test, they would also present him with pictures of strangers. Yes. And contrast those uh, those findings. Oh, yeah. But we don't have the specifics of these tests that were performed on Ravindra. Um, the last one is polygraph which mm -hmm. is inadmissible in U.S. courts. And because it's a load of hooey. Yes. And those are the tests uh, – you know this already, but those are the tests that look at how your body is responding to stress while you're under questioning. Oh, did we tell everybody the way to beat a polygraph on this show or the way to render it? Is it like the thumbtack method? I know that's one. That's one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what is the thumbtack I think if you, if you just have like a – a baseline of pain that you have, it can skew the entire result. So if you like sneak in a thumbtack and just like stab yourself in the leg with a thumbtack the entire time, it's going to skew the results where the baseline of like calmness, I guess, that it's looking for is going to be much more difficult to ascertain. And it may look like a faked test. It's like, mm. you know, or it may look like a, a, a botched test or something was wrong, but they certainly can't actually get anything useful out of it. You hear this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it's uh, similar to the other approach, which is to just uh, for the entire length of the interview, really flex your butt mm. and and like really put wow. some put some effort into it uh, so that, again, there's this strain that alters the baseline. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. for Atlanta Monster – we had we interviewed a gentleman who performed a polygraph on Wayne Williams, and mm -hmm. one of the things he said is there are sensors now in the chairs to prevent that. 
Oh, no. That very thing. So you clenching, anything like that, they do like a full search now if they ever do these. Not that polygraphs are just, <laughs> you know, being used all over the place in law enforcement. But they, yeah, they that method was real. So let's all get some thumbtacks or maybe not kill people. It's okay. also why it's laughable when someone accused of, of sexual misconduct will come up, come out and say, but look, I, I took a polygraph by my own, you know, I, I uh, volunteered to do it. Here are mm-hmm. the results. Check it out. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, you just played yourself. Yeah. Oh, and just the one last thing with those polygraphs on yeah. Wayne Williams, they, they performed three tests. So they run the same questions three times and they don't look at one individual test. They come like look at how each question changes each time you mm-hmm. answer it. Right. To build a more robust data set. Well, what did, what did this alleged beer man say during his polygraph? Well, the authorities said that during these tests, Ravindra had confessed to both being involved in 21 criminal cases and to committing 15 murders. Wait, some good finger swishing. Yeah, so so involved in 21 crimes, but, uh, you know, committed 15 murders, Mm. according to the authorities. That's a weird thing to admit. It's a weird distinction to make, too. It makes you wonder if there was torture involved. Well, now, well, here's the thing. Now, remember, this is, you know, a report that came out, right, from sources. Then, of course, he went to trial, and he only stood trial for three murders. Mm -hmm. So there was only enough evidence to connect him with three of them. And he was found guilty on one count of murder. This led to him being sentenced to life imprisonment, however— Things changed in September of 2009 when the Bombay High Court made a ruling. And what a ruling it was. Um, The Bombay High Court overruled, in fact, Ravindra's conviction and declared Cantrell not guilty of the murders. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he went on to open himself a little food truck, fast food stall, uh, and he sold the rights to have his story adapted into a film. And as of now, he is a free man and and the beer man murders uh, remain unsolved. Yeah, that was – when I was doing the research, that was my favorite part was the fast food stall and the rights to the film adaptation. You can Mm -hmm. find an interview where he talks about it. But he also says that uh, his reputation by and large is ruined because, you know – he was sentenced. He was convicted and sentenced. And after a sentence like that is overturned, it doesn't mean that the the community forgets. Yeah. Well, and it's not like your picture wasn't all over the media right. so people can recognize you. And the other thing, apparently he is now a usual suspect in Mumbai. So anytime anyone dies, they'll mm-hmm. go and find him and bring him in for questioning. Well, again, to that point, he did confess to committing – 15 murders. That's right. And like had, according to uh, uh, according to somebody. So, okay, right. And you know, and like we said, we don't know if if these things were said under duress. But you got to wonder too if you get a nickname like that and that's your claim to fame, whether in good taste or not, if you've gone free, do you get to keep the nickname? Like can you can you call your food truck the beer man? I'm sorry. That's making a face. It's just I don't I don't like the idea of a potential serial killer opening a food truck based on the name that was given to the serial killer by the media. Well, you will be happy to learn that most of the serial killers who were committing acts of cannibalism and feeding uh, unsuspecting people human flesh, uh, a, 
a lot of them have been caught. Again, I can't make you feel 100% better because we only know the ones that got caught. But the, the Thanks, Ben. It helps, though. Hey, you know, I'm here for you, man. But the interesting thing, the darkly fascinating thing about the power of nicknames here is that there was a case in Egypt with a serial killer who was known for heading a gang on the train where they would, uh, they would abduct people children and other gang members sexually assault them and kill them. Uh, He got caught. Uh, He was executed. But afterwards, people began naming things after him. uh, And his name caught on posthumously, which is a troubling statement. But he's not in this episode because he was definitely caught. Okay. Well, Ben, I mean, you had a conversation off mic about um, that museum of death that I, I went to in L.A. and the the whole like the ethics of uh, making money off of your crimes if you are actually incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Whether you can sell, let's say, like a, a work of art, like John Wayne Gacy in this museum, there were a ton of John Wayne Gacy paintings that he had done of him as a clown, or you know, various things like that. And there was even I can't remember the guy's name now, but he was an absolute um, monster. But he had this series of like these collages. And these like almost pop-up books and there was a notebook of letters and one of them was a dispute that he had with an art dealer about how they like owed him money mm-hmm. and it was literally a correspondence between him and this art dealer and you can see the back and forth and I mentioned this to you Ben and, and the theory was it's it's technically not legal I guess to um, represent a known criminal like that for works that glorify. I don't know exactly what the laws are, but mm. our theory was that maybe they did it to get him in the door and then they were not, they were, they weren't going to pay him because he doesn't really have a leg to stand. Maybe that's what it was. They didn't, they didn't really have a right to sue right. them. Yeah. yeah. Due to the son of Sam law, uh, which is a, a, a kind of an umbrella term for laws designed to keep not just serial killers, but any criminals from profiting off a, off a result of their crime. So not just, you know, not, not just art, for instance, but you can't sell the rights to your life story or film. Like if Matt, and I apologize in advance for using you as an example here, I've just got a system and, and your mm-hmm, name came mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, uh, if Matt Frederick, the, um, <laughs> to give like the worst example, what's, what's well? Let's what? say let's say Matt Frederick is in I don't know constant talks with a convicted serial killer, um, and there are talks of selling rights to a story, mm-hmm. and then the uh, Georgia Department of Corrections finds out, and then you have to go through the motions, right. Just Let's like just that. say like hypothetically that, <laughs> that happens. Well, the first uh, the first law that would qualify as son of Sam law was created in New York uh, after David Berkowitz mm-hmm. because there were all these rumors that publishers and movie studios were offering a lot of money to him directly, mm-hmm. which is paying – if you think about it, it's it's not that far away from paying someone to kill people. Yeah. That's essentially what it is. Uh, so, yes, Noel is absolutely right. That is a, a debate that continues today because then the other question would be, well, is it is it as bad if we buy the rights to this but the money legally is required to go to a fund for the surviving family members or something? You that's, know what exactly, I mean? that's exactly how it's handled nowadays. It goes to a fund for the victims' families. But it doesn't bring anyone back. No. Nope. And earlier, let's – so now we have no – we as in 
the human species don't have any public clues for the beer man murders. Uh, we do have other cases and they're not just in India. They're not just in the United States. Uh, we will travel to a very different part of the world for our next example after a word from our sponsors. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Johannesburg, South Africa, beginning so far as we officially know in 2010, uh, an unknown individual or group of killers was meeting gay men online in forums, gaining their trust, traveling to their homes and brutally murdering them. Uh, at this point, you know, earlier in our beer man example, we were able to say for a certain span of years. Mm -hmm. But at this point, 
uh, the years just ending question marks. We don't know when or if this stopped because for years, law enforcement would not identify the murders as linked, nor did they publicly describe this as the action of a serial killer. And this led community activists in in the area, in Johannesburg, uh, to say that the police were slow to investigate due to rampant homophobia in South Africa. So slow, in fact, that they were actively just not caring nor prioritizing these violent crimes. Jeez. Yeah, and that sentiment is echoed by Dowie Nell, the director of Out, who says that police were sluggish. Same thing. Police were sluggish in their investigation because of the sexuality of the victims. And as each murder becomes um, or became known to the media, Nell would call police to step up their investigation, say, come on, you guys, get on this. This is happening. This is very real. But apparently it just didn't do any good. And we have a quote uh, from Dowie. Up to this point, there have only been three arrests in one of the cases. We call on the police to please take this seriously and increase the urgency of their investigation to ensure justice for the victims and their families. And the police went on to state that they believe that there may be a gang of homophobic uh, murderers targeting men um, with the last reports as recently as 2013 uh, alleging that the killer or killers may have actually relocated to Cape Town, South Africa. Which is strange, isn't it, that they moved from Johannesburg to Cape Town if they are Mm -hmm. indeed related. And in this instance, questions remain. Uh, We would be – We'd be very interested in hearing your take on this if you lived in Cape Town or in Johannesburg uh, during this time. And especially we'd like to know if the local community believes these are ongoing or if this was a spate of things that were uh, considered to have some definitive span of time and just remain unsolved. Again, Uh, The uh, critics, LGBTQ activists and more uh, say that the South African police forces are simply not prioritizing these murders uh, due to the fact that it afflicts a stigmatized section of the population. And when we go – when we talk about this kind of cultural prejudice, it's deceptively easy to say, oh, that happens in another culture, right? Uh, Homophobia is so rampant in insert city or insert country here that it is an unfortunate fact of the matter and it surely wouldn't be the case in, I don't know, a country like Canada or Western Europe or the United States. Wait. Example number three, the doodler. Yeah, this one's tough. Um, From 1974 to 1975, a man known only as the doodler killed up to 14 gay men in San Francisco. Um, He got this name because he would meet his victims at gay bars and sketch their portraits before um, taking them to a location, having sex with them, and then stabbing them to death. Yeah, and Noel mentioned that he would draw portraits, paintings, Mm -hmm. just drawings of his victims. None of these were ever released to the press. And although it's believed he killed 14 people, Mm -hmm. it's much more likely – that he took around five victims. Yeah, and that that can sound confusing. What what that means is that up to 14 people in similar circumstances disappeared 
or met a violent end around that time, but the investigation as it stands traces the traces only five specifically to him, uh, usually via eyewitness accounts, right? And months after his last killing in 75, uh, the San Francisco Police Department did release one sketch related to the doodler. It was not a sketch he made of his victims. It was a sketch law enforcement had made based on descriptions of the suspects. Uh, he was a black man in his early 20s, around six feet tall with a slim build. And according to one witness, he described himself as someone studying commercial art. Mm. And one of the big questions that pops up in our minds when we look at this is why why haven't we heard of this yeah. you know why is this um murder in, this series of murders in a very uh well-known part of the united states why is it so unknown today and in the great span of history 1974 1975 was not that long ago many people listening to the show now were alive then here's part of why this may have been brushed aside. The murders took place around the same time of the notorious and likewise unsolved Zodiac murders. And as in the case with the Johannesburg murders, it seems that part of the official disregard and part of the legal obstacle course facing any uh, any pursuit of this criminal uh, can be traced directly back to homophobia. In fact, the killer could have been caught. Yes, because he left. There were some surviving victims of the doodler who were actually prominent people that could have gone to the police and said who they were. But there's a problem in doing that. You're going to out yourself to everyone if if you admit to being a part of this. Right. Harvey Milk, who was a well-known politician and activist in San Francisco, also a gay man himself, um, he said this to the Associated Press regarding his understanding of people's position in this case. He said, I respect the pressure society has put on them. Um, he estimated that 85,000 homosexuals lived in San Francisco, uh, and he said that of that number, a good 20 to 25 percent are in the closet. And Milk's estimation proved to have some sand because the police – Questions survivors, including a, a quote, well-known entertainer, a diplomat from Europe, uh, as as Matt had said, prominent people. And for a year, for a year, the police were questioning a suspect that they believed was the doodler, right? Mm -hmm. But he did not admit guilt and none of the survivors, uh, to the earlier point, were willing to testify. And this meant that there was no way to charge him. There wasn't any smoking gun evidence. He was not, uh, you know, he was not physically linked to this stuff. And the most important piece of the evidence, the survivors who could point at the guy in court and say, yes, that's the man who tried to kill me, were not willing to, you know, having already risked their lives by surviving this ordeal, they were not willing to risk their lives again, uh, given the social stigmas of the time. And you can ask the San Francisco Police Department about these cases. Uh, they will give you the same response they gave journalists, which is? We don't discuss open investigations. See, now that's fascinating that it's it's still an open investigation somehow. And I wonder what methods there could be to attain 
some of some of those records because it is, it's been since 1974, 75. I don't know. Well, I, I'm gonna look. I'm really. I'm seriously. I'm gonna look into this. I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where, when a case is that old and that cold, the only break you're gonna get is someone running their mouth. Yeah, you know, talking out of school in a bar that someone happens to overhear, and they make a complaint, and the next thing you know, you're in Buffalo Bill's dungeon. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that. That that really does feel like like a short of you know they call them cold cases, but they definitely get sh- trundled off to the back to to relegated to the filing cabinets. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, people are not actively working these cases; they just don't have the the resources to do it. Right, mm-hmm. and especially in a time where news cycles move so quickly mm-hmm. and news becomes so ephemeral, uh, it's easy for these things to be forgotten. I, I like your point about somebody having to speak out of turn to release this kind of information that would be held up because. You know, the reality is that murder cases, the national average is around a a 60-something percent clearance rate, which means that uh, clearing a case means that it has been explained. It was a suspected murder. They either explained what happened or they found the person responsible or the people responsible. So with that that little less than 40 percent unclosed, uncleared case ratio, we know this kind of stuff happens. And in the course of our exploration today of uncaught serial killers, uh, we found what we'd like to call a dishonorable mention. And it involves uh, a case that may well uh, encompass multiple assailants. It is the case uh, that may be familiar to some true detective fans known as the Jeff Davis Eight. Yes. Between 2005 and 2009, there were eight women from the town of Jennings, Louisiana in – this is in the Jefferson Davis Parish. Uh, They were murdered and their bodies were dumped in ponds and canals in the area. And uh, these these victims died of various causes. Some had appeared to have been asphyxiated. Two of the women had their throats slashed. One in a uh, one in a truck that was available to law enforcement uh, covered in her blood. Hmm. Uh, but the the means of death aside, the women of the Jeff Davis Eight had plenty in common. All of them were from South Jennings, the poor side of town, and they knew each other. And they were all living in poverty and had criminal records um, full of drug abuse and petty crimes. Uh, and they often supported their drug habits with uh, with sex work. Yeah, this sounds very familiar. An author named. Ethan Brown investigated this for a number of years. He wrote a book about it called Murder in the Bayou. And he also noted that all eight of the victims there in Jefferson Davis Parish were informants for local law enforcement about the drug sales in the drug trade there in Jennings, which is a very small town. Originally, investigators believed this was a single deranged serial killer. However, Brown, who was a New Orleans-based PI when he first heard of the murders in 2010, uh, he thought there was something else to the story. And he was astonished that the police claimed they had no leads. To Brown, this sounded strange in a town that had around 10,000 people. And he visited the site himself over the next few years, connecting one dot after another. Here's some of the things he found. He found that all the victims had at some point stayed in the Bordeaux Inn. And this was a motel, uh, which is closed now, where the town's drug dealers and sex workers would get together to get high and to have their clients 
over. He also found that officers of the parish slept with uh, some of the women who later became victims. So this is some kind of like kinky police murder ring? Well, Brown, to his credit, just connects dots and doesn't draw. He's trying to be very journalistic about it, Mm -hmm. so he's not drawing hard conclusions. But I agree with you. It does seem to be the case. He also found pretty compelling uh, proof that evidence in these eight murder cases had been tampered with or was removed from the parish entirely. And one of the big things that went missing was that truck where the one victim had her throat slashed. You would think that a truck that was a essentially rolling crime scene wouldn't disappear in that way. So additionally, a prison nurse and a sergeant voiced concerns about this. They said they thought there was something rotten in the parish and they were fired. Uh, several women who provided information about the initial murders later became victims themselves, leading uh, Ethan Brown – uh, like like Noel, to believe that there wasn't so much a serial killer active here as there was a cover-up that was in some way directly connected to the sheriff's office. And here's where it gets even crazier. In 2014, Brown discovered that the Boudreaux Inn was owned by a Louisiana congressman named Charles Bustini. And this gentleman had himself slept with at least three of the murder victims. So here's my question. Are they murdering them to keep them quiet or is the murder like the kink that's being exploited here? It's like sex isn't enough. These powerful men like want to take lives, you know, for sport. Well, Ooh. that's if he was actually involved oh, in I know, any way. I know. I'm just, but I'm just throwing maybe. it out there. It's a good question. Yeah. yeah. Because we see – so we can – Sketch this out in a little bit more detail here, uh, which you can find in Ethan Brown's book. He connected the ownership of the inn in the following manner. Uh, A guy was a fixer and a representative for the congressman had the hotel purchased under an entity that he controlled. This enabled the congressman's office to say, oh, we had no knowledge that he owned that. We had no stake in this. Any allegations regarding me are uh, completely unfounded, completely untrue. What happened to these women that I, again, have never met is a tragedy. And any uh, anyone living in town that you want to ask will tell you that I have not been with these people. Again, to rewind that a bit, anyone living in town – can tell you I was not involved. Uh, Brown also found that law enforcement's own witnesses to the murders, the ones who weren't later killed, uh, believe that members of the police force themselves are either directly responsible or know who is and aren't saying anything. Uh, as of today's episode, the murders remain, like the murders in our earlier cases, officially unsolved. You mentioned True Detective uh, before this one. Is this – this story is – was the basis for some of the writing of that season, like the good season, True Detective? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of people, both fans of True Detective and people who would uh, witness this dark story unfolding, felt that uh, – what's his name? Nick Pizzolatto? Yep, Pizzolatto. That's right. Uh, they believe that he had taken inspiration from this. For his part, he says that he was not aware of 
uh, these murders, even though he was located in the rough area. But he got dinged for for ripping off some other source material too, mm-hmm. I the believe. The Yellow King, right? Well, not the Yellow King. The Yellow King was definitely referenced like as a work of, of uh, fiction in the in the plot line. But I think there was another, like a philosopher or mm-hmm. something, who he kind of stole from verbatim in some of the things that uh, Cole, the um, – Matthew McConaughey character said it was a thing that came out in an article right when that was really hot. And I remember it was not particularly flattering. Right. Yes, I remember that. Uh, Thomas Ligotti. Yes, Thomas Ligotti, uh, a very dark philosophical horror writer as well. Yeah, I remember when we were talking about the article off air because <laughs> mm-hmm. we all uh, we all stopped work because there was such true detective nuts that we had to we had to convene an emergency summit. No, <laughs> no, not Nick. But yeah, for for that part, um, and I think it is important to mention that there this was not the only accusation of this author taking ideas from other people, uh, but for this part. The author says that he was unaware of this uh, and the connections to um, Ethan Brown's articles were somewhat coincidental or entirely coincidental would be Pizzolatto's argument. But uh, regardless of what inspirational fount he drank from, it, it remains the case that these these murders are unsolved. The Beer Man murders are I guess now they're officially unsolved since the one case got turned over. Yeah, I mean, I got, they let that guy sell the rights to his story and open a food truck, so mm-hmm. they must be on to the next thing. But I couldn't find anything uh, more recent than just that guy walking, so I guess they're back to the grindstone. And in several of the cases outlined above, it is almost entirely certain that the killer will either never be caught or never be convicted in court. It's true that there are additional cases wherein a killer is revealed after their death or while confessing on their deathbed, but going to our earlier point about uh, about people falsely confessing to things, mm-hmm. there's also this troubling phenomenon wherein someone, perhaps due to uh, the dementia of age or to some other desire, right, uh, some condition or desire, they will falsely confess to something they never did and uh, then people say well maybe they they were this uncaught person but in this case the in these cases rather the murderers listed in this episode have not been caught several of them walk free as we record this i don't know if we should add a moral to this i don't know if there is one i think maybe instead we add a call for your help both on behalf of the survivors and uh, behalf of your fellow listeners, and on our behalf as well, do you live near any of these areas? Were you alive while these crimes were taking place? Uh, in the course of our research for this episode, you know, we found numerous, numerous cases of unsolved crimes from, say, the 1700s or the 1800s, well before uh, criminologists had even attempted to um, make a term to encapsulate this sort of practice. Uh, but those, those crimes have even less of a chance of being solved. These crimes, well, they have a very, very, very slim hope of being solved, are still not completely impossible to crack today. So write to us on social media where we are at Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter and Facebook. 
We also have a new Facebook group called uh, Here's Where It Gets Crazy because that's the place where it gets crazy is in that Facebook group. And you can, uh, you know, you can sign up and it'll send us a ping. And if, if, if we think you've got the stuff, we'll, we'll accept you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's Spoiler say, alert. We, we accept everybody. We do. It's a great place to discuss an episode if you just want to talk with somebody else about it and maybe nobody in your close family or friend group is is interested in a specific thing, go there. There will be people who want to talk with you about it. And I guarantee it has the potential to create some fodder for future episodes and future discussions right here on the show. And, jumping right back in. and that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode, you can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is one eight three three stdwytk If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.